Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Moonrise is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video. President John F. Kennedy entered the House of Representatives and walked down the center aisle. It was May 25th, 1961. He was getting ready to pitch Congress on going to the moon. His vice president and the leaders at NASA better have been right. This better be a genius plan. He climbed the steps to the lectern and then he turned to face the sea of lawmakers. He leaned in toward the microphone and he started his speech. These are extraordinary times and we face an extraordinary challenge. Our strength, as well as our convictions, have imposed upon this nation the role of leader in freedom's cause. It was a speech to a joint session of Congress. This is space historian Roger Lanius. And it's got all kinds of stuff in it. To this end, I shall send to the Congress a measure to establish a strengthened and enlarged disarmament agency. But the big centerpiece of this is the moon landing. Kennedy left the moon announcement until last and he worked his way up to it by saying, Finally, if we are to win the battle that is now going on around the world between freedom and tyranny, the dramatic achievements in space which occurred in recent weeks should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere. In other words, What I'm about to propose to you is something that can help us win over the minds of people across the world. Convince them that democracy, not communism, is the better way forward. Since early in my term, our efforts in space have been under review. With the advice of the Vice President, who is Chairman of the National Space Council, we have examined where we are strong and where we are not where we may succeed and where we may not. Now it is time to take longer strides. Time for a great new American enterprise. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. He put forward the plan, the big idea. I therefore ask the Congress above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. And the famous words are... I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. 
And then he goes on to talk about this is something that will be hard to do. And none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. I think we should do it. I think it's the right thing to do. But it's going to be very expensive. It's going to be very time-consuming. And if we do not commit to doing the full thing, let's not start now. And ultimately, it's you, Congress, that has to decide on whether or not we do this. He had, he had a paragraph in the speech that talked about that. Let it be clear, and this is a judgment which the members of the Congress must finally make. Let it be clear that I am asking the Congress and the country to accept a firm commitment to a new course of action, a course which will last for many years and carry very heavy costs, $531 million in fiscal 62, and an estimated seven to nine billion dollars additional over the next five years. If we are to go only halfway or reduce our sights in the face of difficulty, in my judgment, it would be better not to go at all. At the end of the speech, he ad-libs again with the same thing. This is going to be hard. It's going to take a long time. It's going to cost a lot of money. And if you don't want to see it through, tell me now. <laughs> Let's not do it. And uh, there is no sense in uh, agreeing uh, or desiring that the United States take an affirmative position in outer space unless we are prepared to do the work and bear the burdens to make it successful. If we are not, we should decide today and this year. Congress clapped. Well, a little bit. It didn't sound very enthusiastic. He didn't get a standing ovation when all this went down. He had just asked Congress to fund sending a spaceship to the moon. And they were applauding like, like they couldn't really care less. He left Capitol Hill, ducked into the presidential motorcade, and headed back to the White House, wondering... What on earth have I done? I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is Moonrise. Many years ago, the great British explorer George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it. He said because it is there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. first public announcement Kennedy made about going to the moon, and already doubts were creeping in. Maybe it was a bad idea. But didn't they see his rationale? We went to the moon in the 1960s for very specific geopolitical purposes. Absent those geopolitical purposes, we probably wouldn't have done it. Kennedy didn't announce the moon goal because he thought the science of it was important or because the dream spoke to him in some profound spiritual way. No, he was committing to it because he wanted to achieve something 
right here on Earth. It was um, because of global alignment to win the hearts and minds of the world public. They were competing for global influence. They were um, in front of an international audience. That's an essential part of what made the space race a race, uh, why we were in it in the first place. This is Tizel Muir Harmony, curator of the Apollo collection at the National Air and Space Museum. I think often when people think of the space race or Project Apollo, they focus on the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union without asking you know, about the nature of that competition and what they were competing for. In the wake of World War II, hard power, so like invading countries and conquering them into submission, that had fallen a bit out of favor. In fact, many countries previously under colonial rule had recently gained their independence. Algeria, Algeria. Nigeria, Jamaica, Jamaica. Senegal, Uganda, Malaysia, just to name a few. All these newly independent countries were choosing what kind of government they wanted to be and what allies they wanted to have. Kennedy wanted them to choose democracy and America. Project Apollo is one of these prime examples of soft power. You're the United States or the Soviet Union, and you want an empire, you want to rule the world. Don't force these countries to bend to your will. Entice them. Put on a show. The idea of sending humans to the moon was almost deliriously bold, but it would prove that the United States had the technology, the money, the firepower, and the determination to be a superpower, the superpower, the ally of choice. And Apollo is the perfect story to support that idea. That is, if the United States could pull it off. Kennedy was already starting to wonder if he had just totally politically miscalculated. How is he going to win over the hearts and minds of the planet if he couldn't even get his own Congress excited about it? Ted Sorensen, the president's speechwriter, had sat on the sidelines and watched Kennedy deliver the address to Congress. And Ted Sorensen was a brilliant wordmeister. Uh, he's the guy who wrote, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country from Kennedy's inaugural. JFK had come off a little uncertain, Sorensen thought. Plus, the president usually never swerved from his script. It seemed like a sign of his doubts that Kennedy had thrown in that extra unplanned emphasis at the end about how, if Congress doesn't want to do this, just tell me now. They left Capitol Hill together. On the way back to the White House, after that speech to Congress, he's in the limo with Ted Sorensen. Riding the two miles back to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue on this spring day. The weather was climbing into the 80s, but they both wore full suits and ties. Sorensen had black-framed glasses. Kennedy was despondent. You know, he tells Sorensen, I don't think these guys are going to go for this. 
uh, you know, they didn't exactly stand up and cheer when I announced we're going to do this. And, uh, and Sorensen says, oh, it'll be fine, Mr. President. Lyndon has got everybody under, under control. And Vice President Lyndon Johnson did have it under control. I mean, he was a master of the Senate. He knew how to, um, he knew how to manipulate people. Before Kennedy even stepped foot on Capitol Hill, Johnson had made the rounds in Congress, sealing up support in advance for the Moon Project. And he starts buttonholing the leadership and saying, okay, here's what we want to do and why we want to do it. You know, can, do we have the votes? He had it all lined up. Uh, so maybe Kennedy didn't know that or fully realize it, or maybe he thought they changed their mind when he was concerned that they might not support it. But there was never any question. Johnson had it all wrapped up before they gave the speech. Whether Kennedy knew that or not, or believed it would work or not, he arrived back at the White House that day worrying something had gone wrong. He was thinking about what to do. Something clever that could get him out of this spot. It's a smiling Khrushchev who is greeted at the station as he arrives in the fabled city. President Kennedy is next on the scene as he flies in from Paris. His arrival is greeted by bigger throngs than greeted the Russians as he heads for the American embassy and the first rounds of discussion with Khrushchev. Only about a week later, Kennedy met with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. They had a summit in Vienna to try to diplomatically resolve some Cold War tensions. The main discussion was the fate of Berlin. It was the first and the only time that these two heads of state would confront each other face to face. But Kennedy still had the moon on his mind. Because somebody brought him the number. What's it going to cost? Howard McCurdy, author of Space and the American Imagination. Back then, 21 to $25 billion. is a huge part of the federal budget. His budget director tells him, NASA's going to break the bank with this moon program. It would displant the Economic Development Agency and all of this, the work he wanted to do in education and cities. It would eat up all of that money. It was the largest civilian technological program in, in U.S. history, outstripped the Panama Canal, um, the Manhattan Project. It was just such a massive scale. So Kennedy's thinking, What have I committed the United States to do? Can we figure a way out of this? That's the crazy thing Kennedy's trying to get out of the commitment. He had an idea. While Kennedy was here in Vienna for the summit, what if he invited Khrushchev to go to the moon with him? Turning this into a joint project with the Americans and the Russians doing this together. It would save the U.S. a ton of money. It would look like a diplomatic breakthrough. And frankly, it would eliminate the risk of failing publicly. So Kennedy gave it a shot. History has mostly buried this fact, but he actually proposed this. He tried to take Khrushchev aside and say, let's just cut this competition. Let's go together. Let's go together. And initially Khrushchev says, well, that's something worth talking about. But the more he thought about it, the more Khrushchev reasoned, wait. A joint program would give the Americans a real good understanding of what we can do and can't do in space. And by, by extension, what we can and can't do with our nuclear deterrent. That seemed problematic. 
Plus, so far the space competition had been great for Khrushchev. He's got he's finally got a tool he can beat the United States up with and make the Soviet Union look good and, and embarrass the United States with. And, and that's that's the one thing he really needs. Bill Barry, chief NASA historian. I think Khrushchev saw through Kennedy's thinking because Kennedy's objective was to take the embarrassment of Soviets one-upping us in space all the time off the table. And that's really his objective, right? So, you know, okay, we'll either beat you to the moon and we'll move the goalpost to the end of the decade. And, and, and that's one way we can end it. Or the other way is we'll, we'll you know, you know, we'll call it collaboration and, and, and suddenly it's not a race anymore. It's, you know, it's we're working together in space. Um, either, either one of those things is great for Kennedy. They're horrible for, for Khrushchev. You know, so he had, he had, you know, no real incentive to do it. Uh, nonetheless, Kennedy did raise it again the next day and, and Khrushchev says, well, you know, again, it's something worth talking about, but I really think we need to do something about a nuclear test ban treaty and maybe some sort of strategic arm limitations treaty before we go down that road. So Khrushchev killed Kennedy's hopes of joining forces to go to the moon. And that was the end of it. A joint lunar program never gets off the ground. Kennedy felt like he had blown it in Vienna. All of his diplomatic tactics at the summit had actually gone pretty poorly, the discussion about Berlin included. Two weeks later, back in the United States, the Soviet ambassador paid a visit to the president at the White House. He had something to give Kennedy from Khrushchev. It was a puppy. And the ambassador said, your wife, the first lady. She asked Chairman Khrushchev over dinner in Vienna about one of the dogs we sent into space. This is Strelka's puppy. It's a gift. Kennedy had no option but to take the puppy. Its name was Pushinka, the Russian word for fluffy. And it was fluffy. It was a fluffy little mutt with white fur and gold-tipped ears, and it would live at the White House. The humiliation was piling on. He was barely into his presidency, and already Kennedy had the Yuri Gagarin flight, the Bay of Pigs, the moon announcement he regretted, the botched meeting in Vienna. And now this? A fluffy, cute, mortifying reminder of the Soviet lead in space. And a reminder of Kennedy's failed summit with Khrushchev, which Kennedy had called the, quote, worst thing in my life. Nineteen sixty-one was something of a rocky first year for Kennedy when it came to space. He committed to the moon. He tried to get out of it. Alan Shepard became the first American to go to space, but he only went up and down. He didn't orbit like Yuri Gagarin had already done. Plus, Gus Grissom, who was the second U.S. astronaut to go into space, he had a nearly disastrous landing. In the summer of 61, shortly after the botched Vienna summit, Grissom flew up to space briefly. Then when his capsule landed in the sea, the hatch blew open prematurely, and the capsule and Grissom's spacesuit flooded with water and he nearly died. But as 1961 turned into 1962, the Apollo program started to rev up. 
1961, Congress had given NASA a budget of almost $750 million to support the new spaceflight program. By 1962, Congress increased it again to more than $1.2 billion. And by that February, John Glenn successfully completed his orbit around Earth. First glimpse of the conquering hero, Colonel John H. Glenn. He left his footprints among the stars. He has a grin as wide as the path he blazed. President Kennedy was getting more comfortable embracing his commitment. We have a long way to go in the space race. Uh, we started late, but this is the new ocean. And I believe the United States uh, must sail on it. Despite JFK's initial concerns, public enthusiasm for the program was growing. John Glenn's launch had been watched on television screens across the country. The networks gave it prime coverage. And sci-fi figures, in particular, were eager to help the space program along. L. Ron Hubbard, the former astounding magazine writer and the Scientology founder, he wrote Kennedy a long letter in 1962. He offered to provide Scientology counseling for the astronauts, you know, to further improve their IQs. The government did not take him up on that offer. Ray Bradbury, the author of Fahrenheit 451, also wrote Kennedy a letter saying that he'd spent his whole writing career thinking about space and science fiction, and he would love to help the administration in any way it needed. Kennedy did respond to that letter, and he thanked him. The Kennedy Library up in Boston has a large archive of these presidential letters, as well as old White House tapes and oral histories. And one of the old interviews it has is with Rocketeer Werner Von Braun. The details in his interview gave me this very vivid picture of how Kennedy interacted with the Apollo program. In September of 1962, so almost a year and a half after his moon speech to Congress, Kennedy decided to visit a number of the space facilities around the country. And his first stop was NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Where he is greeted by Dr. Werner von Braun, space pioneer and director of this research and development center. Werner von Braun gave the president a tour for a few hours, along with Vice President Johnson and NASA Administrator Jim Webb. He showed them the Saturn rocket under construction. This booster is the first stage of the rocket that will put the three-man Apollo capsule into a two-week orbit of the Earth in 1964 as a preliminary to a lunar shoot. The Saturn V was enormous. Just this first stage of the rocket was 138 feet high. It was so tall that it couldn't stand up in the workshop. It had to lie on its side. Von Braun walked the president past it, and they looked like ants. When the Saturn V was complete, it would be taller than the Statue of Liberty. In that interview Von Braun gave, he recalled that Kennedy turned to him at one point during the tour and said, do you think we've bitten off more than we can chew? The scale of this undertaking was hitting Kennedy. Von Braun said, no, Mr. President, if Congress keeps up the funding, 
I think we have a good chance of getting to the moon. After a few hours, Von Braun was supposed to bid farewell to the president, who was headed straight to Florida to get a similar tour of Cape Canaveral. But Von Braun had gotten to chatting with the vice president, and right before they were about to leave, Johnson asked Von Braun, why don't you hop aboard Air Force Two, tag along with us for the rest of the trip? Von Braun was not one to say no, so he climbed aboard the vice president's plane, no toothbrush, no change of clothes, of course no cell phone at that time. He left behind his staff at the Marshall Space Flight Center, and he jetted off on this multi-day adventure across the other space centers of the South. From Alabama to Cape Canaveral, next stop on the tour. Down in Florida at Cape Canaveral, they walked around the massive rocket launch complex. Kennedy wore a pinstripe suit, and he squinted up at the skyscraper scaffolding of the launch pads. Then he'd slip on his sunglasses before taking them off again. They looked at mercury capsules. They met with large crowds of site workers, shook hands with astronauts. This U.S. space capital, the president has a long chat with Walter M. Shira, center, our next man in space. Kennedy had set all of this in motion. It was hard to tell if he was proud or afraid of this thing he had unleashed. Maybe both. The next day, they arrived in Houston. It was a blazing hot day for a speech, especially with the humidity. Von Braun rode in an air-conditioned Cadillac limousine as part of the presidential entourage, but he was still sweltering. President Kennedy, on the other hand, rode the 40 minutes or so to Rice University's stadium in an open convertible. The strong Texas sun beating down on him. Kennedy delivered his speech from the field of the stadium. No shade in sight. We meet at a college noted for knowledge in a city noted for progress, in a state noted for strength. And we stand in need of all three. The opening lines might not be too familiar, but this would become one of Kennedy's most famous presidential speeches. And that's because of the part he said about the moon. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? It was crafted by his speechwriter, Ted Sorensen. Why does Rice play Texas? But that line was a last-minute addition from Kennedy. The speech had the grandeur and the poetry and the delivery that was missing from the one he gave to Congress. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. 
Johnson sat right behind him, listening, his sunglasses on. He unbuttoned his jacket. He wiped the sweat off his neck with a handkerchief. Spectators flapped their hats in their face like fans. But if you watch the video of the speech and you keep your eyes on Kennedy, you'd never know it was scorching hot. He had come a long way from the tentative senator announcing his presidential run in the Senate caucus room. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. The soaring, hopeful prose of Kennedy's speech might give you the impression that he had been won over by the grand promise of scientific achievement that the moonshot represented. Not exactly. Later that fall of 1962, JFK had a meeting in the Oval Office that laid bare his views on space. There was a secret recording made of this meeting, and it's incredible. It's so cool. It's like you listen to it, and it's like you're a fly on the wall for Kennedy's moon conversations in the White House. It took about 40 years from the conversation for the Kennedy archives to find this recording and make it public. Good things come to those who wait. Uh, yeah, the, the whole process of, of declassifying information is, is, is complex. This is Jamie Roth, the deputy director of the Kennedy Library. We didn't know about the tapes until uh, after the Watergate um, scandal happened and Nixon talked about how presidents had a taping system. But once they were found and then declassified and finally released, the audio gave a really amazing window into Kennedy's views on the moonshot particularly this recording of the Oval Office meeting in the fall of 62. The tape is a bit hard to make out clearly in spots, but I'm obviously going to play it for you anyway because it's so fascinating. This is November 21st, 1962 at the White House, and Kennedy is arguing with NASA Administrator Jim Webb about the progress of the Apollo program. Put this program, I think this program is the top priority program of the Okay, so JFK is asking Jim Webb here if the moon program is NASA's top priority. And Webb actually says no. He says we have a bunch of top priorities. And Kennedy is like, whoa, stop right there. Yeah, I think it is the top priority. We ought to have that very clear. Uh, then Kennedy you, goes on. But this is uh, important for uh, political reasons. Uh, international political reasons and uh, for uh, this is whether we like it or not in a sense of race. Uh, the president is saying, like it or not, we are doing this for international geopolitical reasons and we are in a race here. Webb starts to push back on him saying, listen, this is hard. NASA might need more time and resources to pull this off. Webb says, They are real unknowns as to whether man can live under the weightless condition and you will ever make the lunar land. Then the president's science advisor, Jerome Wisner, cuts in. We don't know a damn thing about the surface of the moon, and we're making the wildest guesses about how we're going to land on the moon. 
they're all going back and forth and they're getting kind of riled up. The scientists are like, we need you to support all these other space science initiatives that will help us get to the moon. We can't actually land there unless we put some time and money into figuring out these related space challenges. And Kennedy's like, let me be very clear. There is only one reason we're spending this kind of money and even going to the moon at all, and that's to beat the Russians. Everything that we do ought to really be tied into getting onto the moon and ahead of the Russians. Why can't it be tied to preeminence in space, which are your own priorities? Because by God, we keep, we've been telling everybody we're preeminent in space for five years and nobody believes it. We've told people we're preeminent in space. No one believes us. Like, what we need is to just get to the moon. It's fun to listen to the dynamic and the tension and seeing the president asking questions and, and, and really discovering what he's looking for. And Webb giving it back to the president a little bit, saying, you don't know what you're talking about. And Kennedy's like, ah, you're right, I don't. I'm, I'm not interested in that. Otherwise, we shouldn't be spending this kind of money because I'm not that interested in space. I think it's good. I think we ought to know about it. We're ready to spend reasonable amounts of money. But we're talking about these fantastic expenditures which wreck our budget and all these other domestic programs. And the only justification for it, in my opinion, to do it in this compound fashion is because we hope to beat them. I'm not that interested in space. That's the big takeaway. The only justification to do it is because we hope to beat them. And Kennedy, of course, um, as we know from the conversations that happened in the White House that, that are on tape now, uh, we know that Kennedy really didn't care about the space program at all. NASA's Bill Barry again. But Webb um, saw the space program as, as um, in a very different light. If you did just what the president asked you to do, which is just send some people to the moon and get back, all you're really doing is, is uh, a political spectacular, which really has no basis in reality. And, you, and so Webb is making the argument throughout the 60s whenever he meets the president that you know, we need to have a robust space program. We need to, we need to be studying the planets. Uh, we need to be you know, doing research and all kinds of things, not just building a rocket to send you know, three guys to the moon. And Kennedy is not interested. The tension between Kennedy and Webb kept bubbling up over the course of the following year. You know, uh, Kennedy's a, a Boston, you know, you know, Democratic politician, and Webb is an old Southern boy uh, who's used to talking a lot and explaining things and making his pitch. And so um, they, they, really, um, they really sort of oil and water in many ways. By this point... Kennedy's fears all along about the moon race look like they're going to come true. Congress was starting to lose interest in spending all this money. The program schedule was falling behind. And Kennedy was now going into an election year with this albatross around his neck. Oh, and it didn't help that his predecessor in the White House had been publicly criticizing his decision to go to the moon. He's got Eisenhower out there who's constantly talking about how this is a stupid idea and he never would have done it himself. And it's just an example of this rich playboy who's not very bright and who has no strategic ability to understand what's going on and he makes bad decisions. And Eisenhower said all that stuff in print. <laughs> so if every Republican running for office uses this as, as talking points against Kennedy, it could be bad. In September 1963, 
Kennedy and Webb had one more difficult meeting in the Oval Office about the moon race. Kennedy was blunt with him that there haven't been any recent program achievements, which was a real problem for his re-election campaign. So I'm going into the campaign to defend this program. We won't have edited anything for a year and a half. Then Kennedy tells Webb that Congress is probably going to reduce the funding. And Kennedy asks him, will the timing of the moon landing slip if that happens? We're cut by that about to 5150 If we're going to say we slip a year, we'll slip at least a year, which means that if we run into any serious trouble, if we when I'm going to be big about get re-elected, I'm not, we're not going to go to the moon in my, in our period, are we? Just in case you had trouble totally catching that, Kennedy asked him point blank, even if I get reelected, we won't be pulling off a moon landing before I'm out of office, will we? And Webb said no. No, we won't. Well, this was just great. Kennedy had been convinced to pitch this wildly expensive, utterly ambitious idea, and now Congress was drying up the funding, NASA couldn't make its deadlines, and Kennedy was facing down a re-election bid, looking naive and wasteful and ineffective. It was time for one last Hail Mary. Only two days later, Kennedy went up to New York to give a speech at the United Nations. It was September 20th, 1963, and he gave an old idea one more try. He stood before the UN and he proposed once more to the Soviet Union, this time in public, the idea of healing their Cold War rivalry and going together to the moon. Why should man's first flight to the moon be a matter of national competition? Why should the United States and the Soviet Union in preparing for such expeditions, become involved in immense duplications of research, construction, and expenditure. Surely we should explore whether the scientists and astronauts of our two countries, indeed of all the world, cannot work together in the conquest of space. There is room for new cooperation, a joint expedition to the moon. But the thing is, then nothing happened. The Soviet Union didn't respond with a resounding, yeah, let's go. It actually didn't respond at all. It was as if the president hadn't said anything. Kennedy was just left in limbo, wondering what to do now. Keep pushing for a joint project? Abandon the whole thing? Press on alone? Autumn set in. The trees near the White House changed their colors and they lost their leaves. November 16, 1963, Kennedy went down to visit Cape Canaveral again. He was thinking through what in the world to do. Werner von Braun was there. The president sat through a presentation on the launch vehicles that NASA was building for the Apollo program. There were charts and models of the various rockets on display. Kennedy got up and walked over to them. He reached out to a model that was about a foot tall. He said, 
So this is the redstone. It was a replica of the rocket that had sent the first two Mercury astronauts to space in 1961. He took it in his hand, and he held it up next to one of the other models, which was taller than Kennedy. Are these models to the same scale? He asked. Yes, they were. That was the Saturn V rocket that would send three men to the moon. He looked around at the engineers and said, Gee, looks like we've come a long way. Von Braun remembered this moment years later. He said, There was something like a boyish enthusiasm about him, at the same time, deeply sincere. Afterwards, Kennedy boarded a helicopter at Cape Canaveral, and he viewed the launch complex from the air. Concrete bunkers and metal towers and giant rockets dotted the coastline alongside the reeds and the egrets. The helicopter turned and it flew out 30 miles over the ocean. It landed on a Navy ship and the president got out onto the deck. He watched a Polaris missile launch from a nearby submarine. The ocean rumbled, and then a rocket shot out from beneath the waves and into the sky. It was late November, and the air was chilly but blue. Kennedy had the wind in his face, but was smiling. That was the last time Werner von Braun saw him. He had an invitation to the White House. Von Braun and his wife were supposed to have dinner with the president and Jackie Kennedy. But the dinner was scheduled for about a week later, Monday, November 25th. That would end up being the day that John F. Kennedy was buried. episode of Moonrise. Lyndon Johnson takes over the presidency and the Apollo program, and Sergei Korolev returns. Thank you so much for listening to the Moonrise podcast. We're nearing the final few episodes in the series. If you want to support more of the journalism of The Washington Post, there's a special subscription discount for Moonrise listeners. Just go to WashingtonPost.com slash MoonriseOffer. 
Moonrise is a Washington Post audio podcast. It's the result of the amazing work of producer Bishop Sand, project coordinator Allison Michaels, art designer Courtney Kahn, director of audio Jess Stahl, and the editing help of Carol Alderman. Our podcast launch event was hosted by the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. The experts who appeared on this episode were Bill Barry, Chief Historian of NASA, Roger Launius, a former Chief Historian of NASA, Howard McCurdy, a space policy professor at American University, Teasel Muir Harmony, the curator of the National Air and Space Museum's Apollo Collection, and the author of Apollo to the Moon, and Jamie Roth, Deputy Director at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library. Archival recordings in this episode came from the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, the United Nations, NASA, and Critical Past. I'm Lillian Cunningham, the creator and host of Moonrise. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next week with Chapter 10. A great leader is dead. A great nation must move on. Yesterday is not ours to recover, but tomorrow is ours to win or to lose. I am resolved that we shall win the tomorrows before us. So I ask you to join me in that resolve, determined that from this midnight of tragedy, we shall move toward a new American greatness. More than any generation before.